Psalms. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read two of the Psalms, and then we're going to go to 2 Samuel. So uh, the, the very beginning of the book of Psalms, 3 and 4, and then we're going to go to the book of 2 Samuel. So uh, you want to find your place in one, kind of put your thumb in the other, put yourself a little bookmark there, because we'll switch over uh, to 2 Samuel 15 here in just uh, a little bit. Uh, so I want to open up right off the bat by reading Psalm 3 and 4. Psalm 3 and 4, I want to read both of those together, back to back, just straight through, uh, which I know is a little bit different than what we normally would do, but uh, I want to read both of those together, and then we'll, we'll come back and explain a little bit about what's going on uh, in these two Psalms. So Psalms 3 and 4. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your, on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So that is Psalm 3 and 4. And I wonder what you think of in your mind when you read through those. Maybe you don't think or try to like picture any of these things in your head. Maybe you do. I, I'm not really sure how this works. But for me, uh, the, these are psalms of, of the great King David. We've looked at David the last several weeks. This will be our final week looking at, uh, at David. And uh, these are royal psalms. And many think that these are probably morning and evening psalms. These are meant to be taken together. Uh, one to be read in the, in the morning, one to be read in the evening. Kind of a, a daily liturgy to read these two together. And so when I read the, the psalms, inevitably, the image that comes to my mind is, is basically someone sitting outside in a very serene setting. Like they're sitting by a river somewhere. Maybe they're on the top of a mountain they're kind of relaxed, they're laid back, they're, they're kind of scribbling some stuff down on their notepad, just kind of doing, doing their thing, they're meditating peacefully, crafting this piece of poetry. That's the image that comes to my mind whenever I read most of the Psalms. I assume that someone uh, is doing that, or, or, or perhaps as in the case of a, of a Psalm of Lament, uh, that they're outside somewhere on top of this mountain just crying out to God on their knees, on their face, uh, just crying to be heard, crying for help. That's kind of my, my go-to mental imagery whenever I read through a psalm. I just automatically assume 
that's the circumstance that these things were written in. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe it's you know from Psalm 23, and it talks about green pastures, and it talks about uh, it talks about still waters. I, I don't know why, but that's just my go-to when it comes to the the Psalms. Um, it's a scenery that kind of conveys some majesty and, and stability, some, some grandeur, yet closeness, kind of all in one. And that's what's there. Maybe you don't share that same imagery with me. Maybe your children's Bible didn't have the same pictures uh, as mine. I, I don't know. Um, but each of the Psalms, whenever they're written, they have a, a context to them. They have kind of a, a way that they are written, a purpose that they are written for. They're trying to communicate something. And not only are they trying to communicate something, uh, they're addressing usually a very specific uh, situation. Uh, and each of these has this context that it's written in. And what's uh, striking to me is how the words of these two psalms don't fully seem to meet the context that they're written in. Now, there's certainly some parts of it that, that do, uh, but they really don't fully seem to convey the context that David writes these in. Now, some of y'all may be a little bit confused because you're like, well, I don't really know the context of what these are written in. Good. That's why you're here to listen, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to cover the context that these two psalms were written in, and then we're going to go back to these two psalms and look at them in light of knowing the full context of how it was written. So you can kind of keep your place in Psalm 3 and 4. We'll come back to Psalm 3 and 4 uh, after that, or after we, we look at this. Um, we've been in our series Curveball since all of this, uh, this madness uh, began, since we took a break from First John. Uh, and, and I've told you guys plenty about my love for baseball. You guys are probably tired of hearing about it, but I still love baseball, so I'm going to keep talking about it. Um, I'm having some withdrawals these days because I don't get to watch baseball. I've been watching like old Braves clips from the 90s, like watching their World Series win, watching uh, Sid Bream slide into home. Like That's what I've been doing uh, to kind of get my fix for baseball. I've been, been watching those things that they've been broadcasting, and uh, that's been fun, but it's not quite the same as watching... Uh, the, the live stuff, but I'm, I miss baseball. And one of the reasons that I love baseball is because it does such a good job of teaching you things about uh, life. And do you know the difference between an average college baseball player and a major league player? In all honesty, it's not a lot. It's not a big difference between those, those two athletes. For the most part, they're really good at certain things, or they couldn't have even gotten to that level. So an average college player, your average SEC player, and a, uh, and, a, and a major league baseball player, there's just a handful of differences. And do you know what the difference is between your average major league baseball player and an all-star or a Hall of Famer? The answer is not much. There's not a huge difference in, those, in, in those, those athletes. They are very similar in a lot of different ways. But one of the main differences between each different level of baseball that you go up is how well they can hit a curveball. Most major league players, most major league hitters can hit a fastball. Even a fastball in the upper 90s, which is about invisible. I couldn't hit one of those. But most guys that make it to, to college and make it into uh, at least high-level college and make it into uh, the pros can hit a fastball. The difference between the, the average and the great is usually how well you can hit the off-speed pitch, how well you can hit the curveball. It's that little thing that makes all the, dis the difference. 
If you can hit the curveball, you'll be one of the best hitters in baseball. If you can hit it well, you'll be one of the best hitters of all time. It all depends on whether you can make the adjustment in the split second that is required. And so it is with us in life. The difference between being able to thrive in the midst of, of, of craziness and in the midst of a curveball is simply how quickly you can make an adjustment. How quickly you can, you can shift your perspective whenever uh, life starts to kind of spin a little bit faster and chaos seems to kind of come on you. And, and the idea behind this series is that sometimes life doesn't quite go the way you expect. And then the question is, how are we going to respond whenever that happens? And we've seen sometimes that, that things don't go how we expect. We've seen that in this series. Sometimes it's for the worst. Things are not good. Things are bad. But oftentimes things don't go out as we expect because, uh, because something good happens that we didn't expect to happen. That's called grace. That's, that's kind of the definition uh, of what grace is. It's the basis of our entire faith. When what should happen doesn't. And we get, we get the curveball. So there's good and there's bad, but either way, what we know and what you, what you can see just by a casual reading uh, of Scripture and honestly just by halfway paying attention to your life, what you, know, what you should know at this point is that a curveball is coming. That something you don't expect is coming. Now, I know that's an oxymoron that you should expect the unexpected, but that's, that's kind of the way life works. And that's exactly the premise that we are operating on. And the question that you should be asking, that I hope you've been asking over the course of the last couple of months is, when the unexpected comes, how will I respond? I wonder how you guys have done through the past few weeks. How have you adjusted to new schedules, to new tasks, to new meeting routines, to, uh, uh, you know, Having so, some of you got more free time, some of you now have less free time. Some of you guys are wearing masks, some of you uh, are not wearing masks. How, how are you responding to, to, to that? Do you, do you, do you want to do that? How's that going for you? Um, is, any, is any of this stuff that, that just completely got changed over the last couple of months just absolutely wear you out? Because it does me. It's exhausting. I don't understand why it's exhausting talking to a phone, but it's not as exhausting talking to a person, but man, it is. There's something about talking to a screen that just wears you out. Um, and just constantly having to find new rhythms and new routines, it, it can be uh, exhausting. Uh, and, and for the record, if I never hear the phrase new normal again, I'll be totally okay with that. I am over here in about a new normal. And despite what the media would like to create for us, the narrative that they would like to create, uh, we don't have to find a new normal uh, going forward. We don't have to shift our lives into some sort of this like fear paranoia uh, as though that's how we're supposed to now live our lives. Uh, now, obviously, we want to be, uh, we want to care for others. We, we want to be uh, cognizant of what others are dealing with and what they're going through. Absolutely, all of that stuff is true. But we don't have to switch to this, this new normal of uh, fear is just the default place that we live, right? So we, we don't want to get to that place. Uh, we have to be careful with that. But, but 
you know, part of these changes as things have gone by, you know, I feel like over the last eight weeks I've adjusted well. Some I've not done so well, but others uh, I have. For instance, I can get up at like 8 or 8.30 every day now instead of like 6 or 6.30 to get my kids ready for school. I'm killing that. I'm, I'm doing great at that. I'm all right with, with that. Um, I, I can handle being at home. That doesn't bother me being at home. Now, like days and days on end while it's raining and cloudy, that's not ideal, but I can handle uh, being, uh, being at home. I, I love to watch my kids play sports, but I can handle not living out of my car for a sports season. I'm okay with that too. So uh, some of these changes that have happened over the last couple of weeks, couple of months, I'm actually uh, okay with. O- other parts are a little bit harder. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have, have had to deal with a lot of this stuff, too, from talking with, with screens to uh, anybody else dealing with the, uh, the quarantine 15. You know, you've heard like the freshman 15, like extra biscuit or cinnamon roll or two over the last couple of weeks. I don't know. Maybe you've had waffles a few more times than usual. I, I know we have. Um, all of these things, celebrations and parties that get missed, it can be hard to deal through with, with some of this stuff. And so I wonder, have you limped through the last two months or have you thrived in the midst of the last two months? Now, I want you to hear me before I, I get too far here. Um, I, I'm not trying to, you don't need to like make excuses or, or justify anything to me in all of this. I'm not trying to heap guilt uh, on anyone here, so just hear me out. Um, what, what I'm here to tell you is that, yeah, we're dealing with a curveball at, at this moment. We're, we're dealing with the unexpected at this moment, but this is not going to be the last. It's just the next one, and then there's going to be another one, and then probably by this afternoon, you're going to have another one in your life. If not, by the end of the week, you probably will. And then probably a week or two later, you're going to have another one. They, they don't stop. They keep coming. And a lot of times they keep coming one on top of another, on top of another. Now, there's one that we're dealing with that affects everybody. But what you're dealing with in your life, my guess is you've got some, some things that you didn't expect in the midst of all of this that you're dealing with that nobody else is. And you're trying to figure these things out. It's just one of many right now. So thriving or struggling, my goal here, what I want to be able to communicate to you as a pastor is you don't have to go to a place where every time something unexpected happens, it feels like life just kind of spins out of control. I just want to help maybe walk through some biblical texts here that can help get us ready for the next one. And I think these two psalms will help us. They've helped me a lot over the last couple weeks. David's language in these psalms is striking to me. If you look through these psalms and you read through them, what's striking is that he's in the midst of some drastic life changes. He's in the midst of some drastic life changes, and, and, and the, the psalms don't really seem to echo what he's dealing with. They do a little bit but not entirely. So turn to 2 Samuel now, 2 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to get the context for these life circumstances that David writes these psalms under. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of set the stage a little bit, and then I'll read uh, a couple of verses here in 2 Samuel that will kind of explain that. So um, 
Life for David at this point has gone sideways. He's a little bit older in his reign uh, as king. He's been there for a while. God has made a covenant with him saying that, uh, he, that there would be an heir to his throne and that David's lineage would be able to keep the throne. So that's a pretty reassuring thing for David to have. But uh, in the years that, that follow that promise, that covenant that God had made with David, things kind of go sideways. And that's what we see here. I mean, for me personally, if God comes and makes a covenant with me and says, here's what I'm going to do for you, my initial thought is, well, great, I'm, I'm taken care of then. I don't, need, I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything to, uh, to, to deal with. It sounds like the ticket to a pretty good life if God shows up and tells you something like that. But that's what makes these psalms so interesting. And that's what makes 2 Samuel uh, interesting too. So 2 Samuel 15 kind of sets the stage for what's going on. In the midst of some serious family drama, there was all kinds of family drama with David pretty much his entire life, but in the midst of some serious family drama, it gets ramped up here in this chapter. His son Absalom uh, had asked for David's blessing for something of a promise that, that one day whenever David stepped down from the throne or when he died that, that Absalom would be able to, uh, to, to step in as king and to be able to, to reign. He had gone to David and he would said, would you give me this blessing? David refused. He had planned to give this blessing and this right over to Solomon. Well, needless to say, this made Absalom mad. And this is something that would play out a couple of different times with other sons uh, as well. But in this case, it's Absalom. So Absalom decided to go a different route. He said, all right, uh, Dad, if you're not going to give me the blessing, I'm going to take the blessing. If you're not going to give me the throne, I'm going to take the throne. And, and he, did, he did this by deciding that he's basically going to, uh, he, he's going to do something that we're all pretty familiar with, that we all know well. He's going to do some negative political campaigning. Now, he's not going to buy ads that he's going to put out there for, for people to see where he's just going like, to kind of call people names, but, but he's got a pretty good plan of how he's going to do this and do this kind of negative uh, political talk. He wasn't running for king, but he knew how important it was for the king to have the people on his side. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king of judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did all of Israel who did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what Absalom does would have fit in perfectly with politics today. He basically said, All right, you guys are coming to get a hearing from the king. And what would happen is that David, the king, or someone in the king's court would serve as kind of chief justice, and they would rule on what they would hear that day from these people. And he says, he says, 
If I were that person, if I were the king, I would make sure that justice is served here. And, and I agree with you. You've got a great case. I agree with you. You absolutely should be heard. But I'm sorry. David has really fallen down on the job. My dad, he's, I mean, I love him. He's my dad and all, but uh, he's really not done a good job here. You're not going to be able to get a hearing before him. Even though you're right, you're not going to get a healing before him. But if I were king... Ah, I would make sure that justice would be served to you during this time. And so he would kind of poison the well just a little bit. And so these people would then turn. Remember, this is at the city gate. So they never even make it to the palace. They never even make it to the courts where they could actually see if they could get a hearing. Absalom meets them and kind of heads them off at the pass and turns them away and says, there's no point in you making your trip all the way there to the palace. He can't hear you anyway. He's... He, he's too lazy to really care about the people. And so these people would then turn and they would go the whole way home and they'd walk home. And you can just imagine that conversation over dinner. You can imagine that conversation on the road. They'd say, you know, David's forgotten where he came from. That crown on his head has, has really gone to his head. And it, it might be nice to have someone younger, someone that knows the people a little bit uh, better. Maybe Absalom would be really good here. Maybe he really would be good for the throne. And that conversation would be had at dinner table after dinner table, along the road, as they, as they talked to friends. And that conversation began to happen more and more and more. And so David had a massive problem because Absalom's campaign worked. And the people of Israel said, ooh, I think that other guy might be a better king. And then that's when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape from us for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. So the, the messenger comes to David and said, David, I've just heard there's a coup that's about to happen. Absalom has got people behind him. He's got uh, military leaders behind him. He's got advisors behind him. He's coming after the throne. And coming after the throne doesn't mean like, I'm going to take the, the crown from you, dad, and you just need to go away to an old folks home. What this means is that, that David's son is coming to kill him. And most likely coming to kill the other brothers as well to make sure that they didn't try to step in to the line and get in front of Absalom. So David's got a problem. He's not prepared to defend himself. He's not ready for this. All he can do at this point is get out of town. So he gets out of town. He leaves. He flees with a, a small entourage of people. And he gets to 2 Samuel 15 verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. David's life has not gone according to plan here. David's life has not gone according to plan. His rule is not a peaceful story where all is right in the land. The type of things that that, that Absalom was doing is something that would happen a lot as his sons would scheme for the throne. 
David at this point has been thrown a curveball. He's got something unexpected that he's dealing with. He doesn't just get to rule and, and have like that, the happy family picture behind him. His son is literally coming for his head. And so he has to flee, and as he flees, he weeps. He knows the only way for Absalom to pull this off is to kill him. And David knows that Absalom would do it. He has no question. It's a sad commentary on David's life. It's a sad commentary on his family. It's also a direct result of his sin with Bathsheba. When Nathan had confronted David, he told David that this was going to happen, that someone within his household would rise up against him and try to take the throne. So perhaps David should have known this was coming, but he, he didn't totally. He was still taken off guard. And so we catch up with David, headed up the Mount of Olives. He's headed up the Mount of Olives and he's going to worship. And it's during these times that Psalm 3 and 4 are written about. So let's read them again in the midst of this. A king fleeing from his son for his life. Enemies pressing down around him, knowing that they are intent to kill him. Let's read Psalm 3 and 4 again. I'm going to read straight through them again. Notice the, the, the inscription at the top of Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This makes sense in light of the context of what's going on here. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now at this point, there's been no answer that we can see. So how does this make any sense? And then he says something strange here. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Then Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have been me, my relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Does that sound like a prayer that David would be offering right now? He's got joy in his heart more than a guy drunk at a party that's just living it up. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, there's certainly language in here about defeating enemies that you would expect, about being sustained in the midst of this. But the overwhelming force of these psalms is not directed toward fear. It's not directed toward dismay. It's not even saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? It's not a prayer like I would be praying, which would be like, 
make my hands strong and steady, let my sword strike swiftly and take his head off. Like, that's the kind of stuff I would be writing. Like, like God, steady my hand and help me to be strong. David's not doing any of that. He's not frantic in these psalms. Twice in these psalms, I think this is what stuck, stuck out to me as much as anything in these two psalms. Twice in these psalms, he talks about sleep. He talks about sleep. There's nothing as vulnerable as sleep. Yet David is clear that he finds great peace in those moments. He's not afraid to let his guard down. Why? Because he knows that ultimately his reign is in God's hands, not his own. God is the one that will sustain and protect. He's the one that gives peace in the midst of chaos and joy in the midst of pain. David doesn't say, just give me this joy. He says, my joy is deep and it is profound and it is found in you. He's not saying, give me joy by changing my circumstances. He doesn't hardly even talk about his circumstances. What he is saying is, in light of my circumstances, I need you even more to find my joy. Do you see the difference in those two things? He's not necessarily praying that his circumstances change. He's praying that God would be with him in the midst of those circumstances. So whenever the ground underneath his feet begins to shift, and his son turns against him, and life begins to spin, and chaos seems to reign, David says, I think I'm going to take a nap, because I'm not really all that worried about any of this, because it's ultimately not mine to control. He concludes that God alone gives confidence to lie down, to sleep, to prepare for the next day's challenges. I've been living in these two psalms for the last couple of weeks now. They are a powerful antidote to whatever gets thrown at you. David's circumstances do not warrant the confidence you see in these two psalms. I think that's maybe the biggest thing I want you to see in this. He is confident in what God has done, is doing, and will do in spite of the fact that his circumstances warrant none of that confidence. There is no reason for David to be confident here. None. Yet he fully is to the point that he feels like, I could just go lay down and take a nap and that would be great. Perhaps this is one of the greatest gifts of faith. Faith provides what circumstances seek to rob. Faith grants us a confidence that is, to an outside observer, totally unwarranted. It is unwarranted because the, the outside observer, all that the outside observer can see is the strength of man. It cannot see the strength of his God. David's confidence lies in God's promises. Do you see that there? David's advice, offer sacrifices and trust in the Lord. David's confidence that God is, God is his shield. David isn't counting on God to make him strong. He's counting on God to be strong when it is needed. Friends, I, I don't feel like I need to tell you this, but in the, in the midst of this, I feel like it's the right thing that we need to work through. Life will never go as we have it planned, no matter how desperately we want it to and no matter how carefully we plan it. 
in a fallen world with fallen desires and fallen people, there will be a world that is full of pain, suffering, disappointment, sickness, and all of these things. You don't even have to believe in the Bible to believe that this is true. All you have to do is just observe the world and know that things will not go the way that you have them planned. This is universal. Everyone knows this to be true. Everyone knows the reality of this. But what the Bible teaches is that though these things may be universal, they do not have to be absolute. They do not have to be consuming. And they do not have to define us. As Christians, we can follow David's lead when the world falls apart, when our world turns to, to, to chaos. We can lie down and we can take a nap. Why? Because we weren't the ones that kept the world spinning anyway. Because we weren't the ones that were in control in the first place. We were trusting in something far bigger and far greater than ourselves in all of this. We simply have to have the faith of a mustard seed. And then the God that we have faith in, he will deliver. The thing is, that faith almost always looks ridiculous. I don't think we fully appreciate this when we talk about faith. It almost always looks ridiculous for someone to have faith in something they cannot see and something they cannot just like put out and say, here it is. Now, we won't be reckless in our approach. David doesn't just charge headlong into a battle against Absalom when Absalom clearly has him outnumbered. He doesn't just charge in and say, God will protect me and, and, and pick a fight that he doesn't need to fight that God hasn't called him to. But on the other side of this, whenever we exercise faith, we shouldn't look just like everyone else. Our response to chaos should be one that stands out among the world. A few months ago, I stood right here, and I called all of us to be all in for 2020. You know how many times I've thought about that over the last two months? To be all in for 2020. And we articulated several weeks of what, what 2020 was going to look like here at Providence. None of it's going to look like that. None of it. But it's all right. But you know what doesn't change in all of that? We're still called to be all in. None of that has changed. What it's going to look like is going to change. What we're going to be able to do is going to change. But you're still called to be all in. And if you want to know what does all in look like in the midst of chaos, it looks like David saying, you are my shield. It looks like David saying, I have more joy in my heart in the midst of chaos than, than the, the drunk fool at the party who seems like he's having a great time. I have joy in the midst of this. Remember, as he went up the Mount of Olives, he was weeping. And yet he can still say he has joy. Why? Because his confidence is not in his circumstances. His confidence is not warranted by his circumstances. It is in the promises that God has made him. And now on our side, we don't have the same, we don't have the same thing where God has come and made a covenant with us. Not the way that he has with David. But instead we have the new covenant. The new covenant that says that it has, that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's what it says in Colossians. 
And so those, those, that confidence that, that David has, we have even more reason for confidence now as Christians. This is the basis for our faith. And so whenever the world seems to fall apart, whenever the world seems to spin out of control, whenever you clearly have lost control, and I'm not talking about in the midst of a pandemic, I'm talking about when you... When you can't figure out how to get control of things, whenever you get dealt a blow that you don't know how you'll get up off the deck from, when you are weeping, you can still have joy in the promises of God. I have no idea what the rest of 2020 is going to look like. But the call has not changed. I'm all in. And because I'm all in, whatever comes my way, I'm trusting in Him. It's all His. Every bit of it. My challenge and my call to you is to do the same. To trust in Christ. To trust in His promises. And to be all in. Even now. Especially now. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that we do not have to find confidence or joy. We don't have to find confidence or joy in our circumstances. Because sometimes there will be no call for it. Thank you that we do not have to look to our our own strength to find confidence. That we do not have to look to our own ability to control the situation to find confidence. That whenever everything goes sideways, we don't have to figure out how to get our arms around it and get it back under control. But we can look to you and we can find confidence there. Father, will you, especially now, Show us the comfort that comes from being all in. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.